Hey, Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have part two of our series called Revolutionary Christmas. And today we're asking the question, what was the world like when Jesus was born? We're going to be covering a lot of the history of the Roman Empire around the time of Jesus to kind of get an idea of what the historical context was like uh, in that time of the world during the birth of Christ. A couple of announcements here. We do have our Christmas Eve service coming up on Christmas Eve at 5 o'clock. We'll be doing one service this year since we have a little bit more space. Uh, we also have some other things coming up in January, a marriage course called Relate and some small groups. So keep up to date with everything North Shore Vineyard at www.northshorevineyard.org. All right, let's head to the talk. 525 East Boston Street, downtown Covington, North Shore Vineyard Church. Thanks for listening. How many of y'all liked, liked uh, history? How many of y'all like the History Channel, stuff like that? Oh, I, I love that, man. I, my day off, I can just watch history stuff. Um, t- today is going to be... A bit of, uh, uh, and how many of y'all, this, this is probably the better question, how many of y'all hated history? Going on? Okay, it's, uh, it's all right. I actually got my degree in history from uh, SLU. It's a, it's a very practical degree, just in case these things don't work out with ministry. Um, I can become a historian, so uh, there's always history. You've always got history, so... Um, to fall back on. So uh, we're, we're in a series we started last week. Uh, it's for the, the Christmas season called Revolutionary Christmas. And last week I talked to, and each week we're trying to look at a different kind of revolutionary aspect of Christmas because Christmas, it's been tamed. It's, it's, it's kind of cute. Christmas is, is sentimental. We've got all these songs and stuff. And I, I, I said last week, I'm not on a campaign against all the cool things of, you know, Christmas, Christmas trees and Christmas music. I like all that stuff. But... I find even in the church, Christmas has been so tamed that probably the, the most controversial that Christmas can be is in, in cities where they're trying to get a nativity out at the courthouse or something like that. So our controversy is like about nativity scenes. And even that, it's just like, eh, you know, that really misses the punch of what Christmas is about. So last week we talked about the most revolutionary part of Christmas that I, I can think of, the part that's really changed my life over the years, the idea of the incarnation. That Jesus didn't just speak the truth. He did speak the truth, but he didn't just do that. In fact, he is not just the truth, but he's the way. So the way Jesus chose to save the world, you realize God could have chosen to save the world any way he wanted to. He could have shown up, put a big neon light in the sky. Jesus is here. Everybody repent and uh, uh, let's get done with this thing. But I said there's, there's something that we, we need to, to figure out that, that God is showing us in the way that he did it. The way that God chose to rescue the world through Jesus was he sends Jesus into this world, into the most humble of circumstances. Jesus lives three decades before he ever does a miracle, before he ever pre- preaches a message, anything like that. He, he entered our world and loved us on our own terms. As Eugene put it, Peterson put it in the message, uh, John 1, 14, the word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. I love that. And so we, we wrestled with that as, as what's that mean for us as Christians? Well, it means that, you know, maybe instead of just telling people the truth all the time, maybe we ought to live the truth for a while. <laughs> maybe we ought to build up some equity with people. Maybe we ought to learn to love people on their own terms, even if it, if it, if it takes a good long time. 
that, that truth isn't just something we share. Love isn't something that we just say. It's something that we show. So I, I, I could get started on that all again, but I'm not because we've got a big message today, a big, long history lesson. Like, oh, dude, why didn't I stay home this morning? Um, <laughs> enough of that in school. Well, hopefully this will be a little bit more exciting than your school history lesson. Um, but uh, one of the questions we're going to wrestle with this morning, and, and, you know, at this church we normally have one PowerPoint slide, which is the title slide. We either have a lot of slides or none. Today we got, we, so me and, me and Gretchen, we're going to try to uh, work this thing out and have my message line up with the slides that are behind me, but I, I don't use slides much, so we'll see how this works. Um, one of the questions we're going to be looking at today is, what was the world like when Jesus was born. I think too often the mistake of Christian, uh, of, of many people when they look at the Bible, they, they make a contextual mistake. Uh, you just pick and choose scriptures and you get this, this, this little scripture out of Philippians or John or Isaiah to mean something that it never meant to the original hearers. And then you just kind of come up with, that's how weird things happen in Christianity all the time. Uh, so there's the contextual part. That's why we spent, if you've been around here over this last year, we, we spent almost a year going through the book of John and we made it up to the eighth chapter and we decided to take a break. Uh, so, uh, but, but one reason we go through John so slowly is so you don't just take bits and pieces out of John, but you can see this whole story that's developing from the, from the first chapters. And you can see that there's a theme, there's, there's a story, there's things that John's trying to communicate. Well, the other side is not just, uh, you know, kind of the, the context within scriptures, but also the cultural context, uh, you know, if, if people were writing a story about us right now that people read 2,000 years from now, and they were trying to understand what was going on in our culture right now, I mean, like, if they were reading stories we wrote, it would probably be good to understand a little what's happened in the last 10 years. 9-11, Iraq War, Afghanistan, Hurricane Katrina... Like if you, if, you were, if you were reading stuff that was written in this period of time and you didn't factor in any of that stuff, some of the things that we were writing about might seem a little weird to you, right? And so today, we're, we're going to try to get a hold of the historical context of what was going on in the world. And so it's probably going to be a long time before we get to the scripture that we're going to talk about today. But, but this is important because I think it, it helps us understand even what the gospel writers were getting at when they wrote the gospel, that, that this is a story that, that, that absolutely deals with the historical context of the world at that time. So, you ready for a history lesson? Yeah. Oh, that's enthusiastic. <laughs> well, the first question I want to uh, get at today is, PowerPoint slide one, oh, what was the world like <laughs> uh, when Jesus was born? Well, the first, the first thing we've got to deal with is it was ruled by the Roman Empire. Second question is, how did the Roman Empire come to rule the world? Well, in dealing with the, the question of how did the, the Roman Empire rule the world, we're going to look at some, some of their generals, some of their uh, leaders. Uh, and, th- and this covers a period of time, kind of about 100 years before, 100 years after Jesus. So we kind of see this, this sample of time uh, of about 200 years that, that frames uh, the life of Jesus on both sides. First emperor I want to look at is a guy named Pompey. Um, 146 B.C. to 48 B.C. It, this was a, a, a Roman general, and there was a, a, a temple in Rome to, the, to, to Minerva, and it has this inscription. 
it says Pompey boasted of taking 12 million subjects in 1,500 towns. 12 million. That's like uh, Houston, Dallas, uh, Atlanta maybe. A lot of people, right? And this was back when cities weren't near as big. 12 million people. There's another guy uh, in, in 15 B.C. This would have been under the reign of Augustus, another Roman general uh, named Germanicus. And he slaughtered the population uh, north of Rome, kind of the Germanic tribes. And uh, it says uh, in the history, it says, For 50 miles around he wasted the world with sword and flame. Neither age nor sex inspired pity. Only the destruction of the race within the war. So the Romans, they weren't like interested in fighting a battle and carving out a truce. This was like, no, we're not done until everybody's dead. We're, we're talking ethnic cleansing kind of stuff. Um, uh, there's a guy named Diodora Seleucus who wrote this statement. They made the boundaries of the Roman Empire to roughly the boundaries of the earth. And they safeguarded the revenues of the Romans and increased some of them. The goal of the Romans was to, to make the boundaries of the Roman Empire the boundaries of the world. They wanted everything. So everything was done to increase their revenue and their power. Um, there's another guy named Titus, a Roman general. And Josephus, the, the uh, first century historian, wrote this about uh, Titus. More than 500 were captured daily by the Romans. The Roman soldiers, out of rage and hatred, amused themselves by nailing their prisoners in different positions, postures, which was crucifixion. And so great was their number that space could not be found for the crosses or crosses for the bodies. Wow. Josephus is saying, these guys, for fun, the soldiers are hanging out, looking for something to do. They just crucify people. They try to come up with with weird ways to crucify people for fun, for amusement. That's what these soldiers were like. So how did the Roman Empire rule the world? I think the picture is becoming clear. Um, Polybius, a Greek historian of the Hellenistic period back in uh, between 200 and 146 B.C., uh, he came upon a a village that had been ransacked by the Romans, and, and he wrote this. It seems to me they do this for the sake of terror. I mean, it, it, it's, it's like, it's not just like winning a war. It's like, they're just so over the top, cruel and brutal. It just seems like there, there can't be any other reasons. They, they came into this village that he'd just seen. They murdered women, children, guys, animals, slash and burn. It's like, not only did they kill everybody, the land was screwed up for years to come. And he says, it just seems to me like these guys just, they're, they're doing this for the sake of terror. How did the Romans come to rule the world? You know, the, by the way, uh, the, the, the cross is the symbol for Christianity. The, the Romans came up with the cross. They came up with crucifixion. So uh, they're, they're, uh, they, they really did come up with very uh, sick ways to kill people in very public ways. Um, there's a general named Cassius. Uh, this is on the Lucius Verus slide, I think, uh, coming up. A general named Cassius enslaved 30,000 people in an area called Terakia, which is Magdala. Do you remember a, a disciple named Mary Magdalene? Uh, Magdalene referred to the area that she was from. So, so many of the disciples of Jesus actually grew up in areas where the Romans had committed like uh, amazing atrocities. 
And under Lucius Verus in 6 AD, now this would have been contemporary of Jesus. This is the time that Jesus was uh, alive. He'd have been a young man at this time. Um, Under the rule of Lucius Verus in 6 AD, he put down a a revolt in Sepphoris, which was actually known as Emmaus. You recognize Emmaus from the Bible? The road to Emmaus, Jesus on the day after his resurrection walked with some disciples. Okay, so there was a town, this, this uh, Sepphoris had, it was a town of 3,000 people living near Nazareth. During that revolt, to discourage sympathizers, Varus had 2,000 people, men, women, and children, killed on crosses. This is a 3,000 population town, and he, he kills 2,000 people. It was said that the screams of the tortured could be heard 30 miles away. Again, this was Roman scorch and burn kind of strategy. And, and so Jesus was growing up in Nazareth just three and a half miles from there. So it's likely when they were killing these 2,000 people on crosses, Jesus could hear their screams. So that's kind of how the Roman Empire came to take over the world. I want to turn our attention to who ruled the Roman Empire. Um, Julius Caesar was the first of the Caesars uh, and probably the most famous, but he wasn't the, the, the most well-respected of the Caesars. He kind of kicked off the whole Caesar thing. Uh, he conquered a lot of people, but there's a lot of turmoil in the, in the Roman Empire going on during the rule of Julius Caesar, and he wasn't able to unify everybody because he was too busy making a salad and um, <laughs> coming up with this cool haircut. Uh, so he, he, was, he was famous, but he wasn't as well-respected as some of the other emperors that came along. Um, now, he had a nephew who was named Octavian, uh, who, was, uh, who actually came to be known Augustus. Now, Octavian, uh, his dad died early on, and so he didn't have a father, and, but he's related to Julius Caesar. He goes out and do, does some amazing things in a war, and so Julius Caesar adopts him because he didn't have a son to be his heir. So when Julius Caesar dies... After getting stabbed by all the centered guys, if you've uh, read Shakespeare or seen it, uh, at Tubrute, uh, he, he ends up becoming the first true emperor of the Roman Empire. Up to that point, the Roman Empire had, uh, had a senate, and they had kind of a balance of power. But once uh, Augustus gets in there, about halfway during his reign... He actually kind of does what the guy's doing over in Egypt right now. He's like, uh, you know, enough of this Senate and stuff. Uh, I'm just going to be the dude, you know. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, so, they, so, so the Senate went to being kind of the, uh, a figurehead, you know, people who would just uh, be there, you know, kind of to, to give their blessing, but they didn't really have uh, true power. So, so Augustus signaled the end of the Republic. Uh, Rome had been a Republic up to that point. And then after that, there were succeeding emperors, emperors uh, Tiberius, who ruled during the earthly ministry of Jesus, Caligula, Nero. If you read the writings of Paul, uh, we talked about this when we were going through Philippians. Nero was the nut job on the throne uh, when Paul was in prison in Philippi. This guy just, he took uh, persecuting Christians to just whole new heights. He would burn Christians impaled on sticks for uh, candlelight at his parties. Just crazy, crazy. Um, Vespasian, Titus, and then a guy named Domitian. Oh, by the way, Domitian in 81 AD, this is an interesting little side note, but just to give you the idea, he declared himself as a god, 
And uh, he, he came up with this rule that if you wanted to buy or sell stuff at the market, you had to sacrifice to him. And so you would go down to the market and you would find the, the altar to uh, Domitian and you would make a little sacrifice, whatever, uh, pay your homage to him. And it was said that you actually had to, to prove that you worshipped him so you could buy and sell, you'd have to get a mark on your hand. And actually, the Jewish people, they hated him so much because he was such a bad dude and they didn't believe in worshipping anybody but God that they, they referred to him as the beast, the beast who came by land and sea. But that's a whole other message. Um, so back to Augustus. Let's see the world, uh, the, the world map, the first map. We've got a map here. This was the Roman Empire at 178 B.C. It's basically Italy, the boot. The next map shows how it was expanded underneath Augustus. I mean, we're talking the whole Mediterranean world uh, from England to Egypt, uh, Asia Minor. I mean, if somebody was able to conquer that much of the world today, uh, especially that diverse of a groups of people, I mean, these were not just, it's not like conquering America. It's, this is conquering different people from all kinds of walks of life. Every time uh, temples were built in honor and prayers were offered to the god Augustus, uh, the, actually the, the uh, Romans, uh, after they get rid of the Senate. They didn't really get rid of the Senate, but there was a mass uprising. They decided to make him a god. And uh, so th- there were actually temples built around the empire to offer sacrifices to Augustus. And the cities where they worshipped were also called ecclesias. So Augustus ruled from Britain to India. Now, this was a monumental time uh, because nobody had ever achieved what Augustus achieved. He unified this massive empire, brought it all under his rule. A lot of Caesars had tried to do that and failed, and he managed to pull it off. Got Rome on one currency, had, had one political system. Uh, it was, it's amazing. I, I actually, when I went to the Middle East, uh, to, to Jerusalem, uh, Israel, a, a few years ago, I was not, I, I just wasn't prepared to see the imprint of Rome. Rome has, there's Roman roads, Roman aqueducts everywhere that are still, I'm, I'm, these, got, these things have been there for over 2,000 years. They're still there to this day. So Rome had its footprints everywhere. And so a lot of people seeing that this guy, Augustus, had, had unified the whole empire, they, they began to talk about him as being a god. And actually there was a lot of myths kind of surrounding him. The poet Virgil uh, wrote this. The one who is to come will be the divine king of salvation for whom mankind has waited. He will annihilate the evil of the past and free the people from unceasing fear. He will establish a universal empire of peace and will lead the golden age, lead in the golden age for the blessing of a renewed humanity. Wow, that sounds like hot stuff, huh? And actually, this is interesting. 17 BC, Halley's Comet appears in the sky. And you can read this in the textbooks. All this stuff is in the textbooks. Uh, Halley's a comet appears in the sky. Now, they just, they didn't know about comets back then. They just said this, this star appeared in the sky and it wouldn't go away. And so it's just hanging out there in the sky. And, and so they began to say, that's Julius Caesar, Augustus' adopted father. He's, he's ascending to the right hand of the throne of Zeus. And so what does Augustus do? He says, well, if my dad Julius is a god, then I'm the son of God. So, I don't know if you have this slide, if it's in order, but uh, 
when Augustus was actually voted by the Senate to be a god, uh, they, they actually, um, to mark his birth, Rome had a 12-day celebration called Advent. And the Roman Empire minted Advent coins that said, salvation is to be found in no other save Augustus. So back in the Roman Empire, they didn't have Twitter. So if you wanted to get something out in about 140 characters, <laughs> you put it on money. I mean, really, that was, that's the way you got a message out because everybody needs money. And, and they would get a hold of it and they say, oh, this is the message. The message that was on the coin said, salvation is to be found in no other save Augustus. And so you, you can see that, that even that, that idea alone, that, that when you get into the ministry of Jesus and his disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, these coins, do we, do we pay them to uh, Caesar? Do we pay taxes? And Jesus is like, well, who's on the coin? This wasn't just a question about money. Because understand, these questions said that, that Caesar was God. So it, it, there, there was a lot of questions tied in with the, with the money and the tax thing. You know, is this a question of worshiping Caesar to, to, to pay the money? But that's a whole other thing. During Advent, during this Advent festival, the priests would distribute in, incense for the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness was offered. Augustus was seen as a high priest, the son of God, who would offer forgiveness to people. He was kind of seen as this mediator between the gods and Rome. You need forgiveness. You're carrying a weight around. Uh, Augustus, he's your daddy. He's going to take care of you. He's going he's to free you. There's another, uh, there's another saying that developed at this time. Caesar is Lord. That was another thing that appeared on coins. Caesar is Lord. That sounds an awful lot like something we say in Christianity, right? So do you understand that, that saying, Jesus is Lord? I mean, we say that today, and it's like, yeah, Jesus is Lord. You see it on a bumper sticker or whatever. Do you realize that statement? I mean, we kind of say it without fear or anything. We might just say it in passing. That was treasonous. When you said Jesus is Lord, you're saying Caesar's not. The, the, the Christian church was taking the propaganda of the empire, and they were saying, no. Caesar's not Lord. He's not the one. He's not the, the guy who brings salvation. He's not the one who's going to bring peace. He's not the one with the everlasting kingdom. That's Jesus. Jesus is Lord and Savior. There's salvation in none other. So understand the early church, when they said Jesus is Lord, that was, that was like, you know, kind of the equivalent of burning a flag or, you know, except you can burn a flag in America. So it wasn't the equivalent of that. <laughs> Probably like, burning the flag in China or something. You know, I mean, it, it was where it, it was, it could get you killed. So how did Caesar get so powerful? He had huge armies. How did Caesar get huge armies? He paid lots of soldiers. How did, how did Caesar get lots of money? He collected a lot of taxes. Actually, that was one of the things of Augustus, if you read about him, uh, he gets to this point where he has to start taxing people. That was a big deal. It wasn't a big deal for the, the subjugated peoples like the, you know, the people, the Jews and stuff. But for Roman citizens, he actually passed taxes on them. It got to where, I mean, we, we kind of see this in discussions today about the national debt. You know, how long can you pay to have uh, soldiers all over the world fighting different battles? Well, that's where Rome was getting. And so Caesar paid the army with taxes and with land. And uh, to do that, he had to raise taxes. So this was the situation of Jewish people in the first century. You are working on the land that was promised to Moses. When Moses led him into the promised land, land was a big deal. It's still a big deal to the Jewish people. 
And, 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 and God said, this land is your inheritance. You pass it on for, you, you hold on to this land. It's important. It's the promised land. So here you are, a Jewish person in the first century, maybe growing up in Galilee. You've had this land that's been in your family for generations, hundreds of years. But now the tax burden is getting so hard that you can't even work the land anymore. You have to go to more uh, jobs that you can do in the city, which I, I suspect is probably has something to do why Joseph was a carpenter and not somebody working the land, uh, Jesus' father. Uh, you got to find something that you can do in the city, something that can go with the work was. They actually said the tax rate at this time, we, we complain when the tax rate gets above like 15%, right? 20%. Um, you know what the tax rate was? I think at this time, I think it was between the, the, the taxes of Rome and the taxes of the temple, which paid for all the stuff that Herod was doing. I, th- I think the tax rate was like 80%. <laughs> 80%. Like we, we get mad if it's 20%. 80%. And imagine how that would make you feel that... Here you are, you've got a pagan empire that's trying to get you to worship their emperor, and that's against your religion. And now they're taking 80% taxes so that they can fund their armies who are going to continue to enslave you. Like, wow. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad that, that, that this Augustus brought peace. <laughs> Nothing like Roman-style peace, right? It's peace, yeah, okay. He's the guy who brought peace, but... Uh, it sure ain't what I was thinking it was going to be. So to know how big the empire is going to be, you got to count the people, right? And so this brings us finally to the text today. You got to have a census. In Luke chapter 2, verse 2, it starts off this way. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. Why does the story start off like this? Why does Luke start the story off by talking about Caesar Augustus and a census? Why does he want to let you know what's going on in the world? Because Luke is saying in the small corner of of the empire to a persecuted ethnic minority, a teenage girl is carrying a baby in her belly. And this king's going to have his own empire. And this empire is going to overthrow. It's going to overthrow the Roman thing. Roman, the, the, the census really was tied directly into Roman might, Roman power, Roman taxes, Roman con, Rome continuing to expand and, 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 and grab a hold of more things. And Luke starts it off by saying, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire world. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph went also up from the town of Nazareth Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, a time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Luke wants us to see that there's two different kinds of empires. One that's built on crushing people. One that's built on loving them. 
One that's built on bondage. One that's built on freedom. One that's built on control and domination. One that's built on freedom and forgiveness. Is this just the story of a, of a pregnant girl? Pregnant teenager? Born you know, with a kid out of wedlock? Is that, is that the story? No. This is the story of Jesus versus the empire. Augustus was thought, as I said by the poet Virgil, he was thought to be uh, the, the world's savior who was to come. That's what he was referred to. And yet, we see the real savior of the world. He comes not with pomp and circumstance. He doesn't come to the palace. He, he's not born in some royal circumstance. He's born in a stable, laid in a manger to the most obscure little group of people, persecuted people. Verse 11 says this, Today in the town of David, this is the angel speaking to the shepherds, uh, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. You know that term Messiah? That was a political term, okay? When people heard the term Messiah back in first century Palestine, they thought of a king that was going to take over and run the Romans out of there. That's what they were hoping for. That's what everybody was expecting. And the angels announced to the shepherds, Today in Bethlehem, a Messiah, the Lord, has been, has been born. This is the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger. Do you, do you see what Luke is doing here? Luke is saying, look, there's this guy Augustus who's the emperor, the supposed king of all. Taking his senses so he can keep controlling everything. And in the midst of that, the true Messiah, the true Savior of the world is being born. You know, there's a, maybe you've read about this in Roman history. One of the problems that Augustus had, if, if you lived in, in the city of Rome, uh, there were just mobs of people everywhere. And uh, it wasn't the greatest place to live. If you go to where the noble, noble people live, it's pretty impressive. They had hot water. They had toilets, public baths. But normal people, like you and I, you lived in this little shack. It was crowded. You had diseases, no, no running water, no toilets. It was pretty bad. So uh, things were, and, and not, not to mention that, the, the unemployment rate was so high back uh, during the reign of Augustus that you had mobs of people who had nothing to do, which is always a bad situation, Right? Mobs of people with nothing to do that are disenchanted and frustrated. Uh, and so Augustus starts this thing called bread and circuses. And you may have read about this before. And basically it was a way to kind of distract the people. And a way to enforce this idea of, you know, uh, Augustus is your, is your dad. He's going to take care of you. And so they would do these bread and circuses. At the Colosseum they would do, they would bring in animals from various parts of the empire. Or they would have... Uh, athletic games or gladiator games. And, and, and Augustus would show up and he'd start passing out bread to everybody. And so, and so it was a powerful way to, to give people a token thing to distract them from how bad their reality really was. And it, it, made, it made Augustus look like he really cares about the common man. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to give you bread. And it's interesting though, during the rule of a, a, a of, of Shortly after the rule of Augustus, when Christianity starts to bring out uh, 
pop up in the empire. There's, there's these small groups that are popping up all over, that they're gathering in homes. And they, they actually have something to do with bread as well. They come together and they say, hey, we do this thing over at our house. It's called breaking bread. And when we break bread, it's part of living in the reality of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who we feel is the true king of the world. And so the, the early church, you would, you would come together at someone's house and you would have a meal and you'd break bread and you'd drink the cup. But before you did that, you'd say, the, the early Christians would say, is there anybody who has any needs among us? See, the Roman Empire promises take care of you, give you bread, provide for you. But the early church started saying, no, we live in the light of Jesus Christ. He's our king. He's our Lord. We're going to break the bread symbolizing his body. But before we do that, do you have any needs among you? Let's see how we can take care of each other. Do you realize that the early church, if you read the book of Acts, they were persecuted. They were looked at as a weird cult on the side. And yet the, one, of the, one of the marks that everybody saw was they were generous with one another. They took care of one another. Dude, you need food? I got some food. You need help with this? Uh, I, let me help you that. Let's all gather around. And they would, they would do that before they broke the bread and drank the cup. So they would say, if you want to know who the true king is, if you want to know who the true emperor is, the true Lord is, come over to my house on Thursday night and we're going to introduce you to him. The, the, the early church also had this other saying, Jesus is Lord. Now, again, uh, not, not just Jesus is Lord, Jesus is alive. <laughs> now, that's a, another statement that we say a lot in church, uh, but again, uh, Again, understand how, how this, this statement was, how, how this would have, have come across. The early church was basically saying, Julius Caesar, that guy that you said was a god, he's dead. Augustus, that, that guy that you said was the son of God, dead. Tiberius, dead. Titus, dead. Domitian, dead. Your dude, dead. Our dude, he's still alive. Our guy is still alive and, and when we come together, we, we have his presence among us. You tried to kill him, but he's still alive. The early church was saying, we will provide the bread, not Caesar. We will make sure that everyone in this room has their daily needs met. You think Caesar's Lord, come over to my house. Can you see why that in only 200 years, this massive empire that covered from Egypt to Britain, Asia Minor, North Africa, in 200 years, it was completely overtaken by Christianity. And can you, can, can you see how this, because Christianity didn't start as some, you know, so celebrity religion for the, for the nobles and, and those who had it all together. It started for people who were broken, people who were slaves, servants, women, you know, who had no rights. It started among oppressed people groups all over the place. And it took over the empire. A simple kingdom that, that grew from people gathering at each other's houses, breaking bread, taking care of one another. Is there any reason to doubt why that happened? Now you can see why this, this movement was so dangerous. That's why when, when, when Paul 
is in a prison in Rome and he says Jesus is Lord, it's not just some cute little Christian thing to say. He's making a treasonous statement. He, he's saying, this guy may be on the throne, Nero, but, but Jesus is truly Lord. And I can say that even if I'm locked in a prison. You know, we did something uh, back in, in November, which I, I loved. I, I, too bad we only have an election every four years. Uh, we, we did uh, Election Day communion here on a, on a Tuesday night. And we just said, hey, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, an anarchist or apathetic or libertarian, uh, apathetic, yeah! <laughs> I'm radically apathetic. <laughs> apathetic and vocal. Uh, but we said, no matter where you're at on the political spectrum, let's come here on a Tuesday night at the end of election day and let's gather around the table of the Lord and let's remember who the true king is. And I tell you, it was, it was a beautiful time. We're doing worship songs, reading, reading things from, uh, verses from the scripture and then we broke bread with one another. We passed around the cup, passed around the bread and we shared communion together. And we said that, you know, I, I think that's the amazing thing about the body of Christ that when I look around this room, there's a lot of us that wouldn't hang out together in a normal world, you know? A lot of, a lot of us, uh, the, the only reason we're here is because of Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, there's a, a, a tremendous diversity. People from different economic stratas, different walks of life, different kind of childhoods, different kind of life experiences, different races, ethnicities are brought together in Jesus Christ. And I tell you, that night when we got together and we celebrated communion, it was powerful. It was a powerful reorienting our lives around who really is king. And we need to see that as a church. I got to tell you, in my years being a Christian, I've seen the church in America get so intertwined with politics that I think we've lost our salt and light. We, we so put our hope in, in politicians and political parties and political causes that, that we forgot who the true king is. And that night when we took Election Day communion together, it was like, you know... Whether your, God, whether your guy won or your guy won, the true king is Jesus. He's the one who our true hope and trust is in. And that was the, I mean, th- that's what we can see from this passage here. Luke is saying, no matter how dark the world looks right now, no matter how bad the economic situation is, no matter how high the unemployment rate, no matter how much they're trying to tax you, no matter how Bad things look. There's a savior that's being born to the humble, to the, to the to the people on the edge of things. Jesus is coming to those people, those who who got no voice, those who have no power. That's good news. That's good news. And so, if you're in this Christmas season and and you're just going through it right now, you're like, man, my life it just absolutely sucks right now. Maybe you're having problems in your marriage. Maybe you're having problems in your job. Remember this story. You know, it's actually interesting to note that that the slaves 200 years ago in America, you know, one of their favorite stories was it was this story. They would they would tell this story over and over because you've got the God of all the world coming to the humble, the lowly, the outcast, the oppressed. And there's hope no matter what's going on. Christ he's coming to you. You have a king and he sees you. One of my favorite songs, uh, a, a favorite artist, a, a guy named Bruce Coburn, he writes this song and he says, it, it, it wasn't to the palace that the Christ child comes, but to shepherds and street people, hookers and bums. You know, 
Jesus didn't come to those who had it all together. That's really good news. Really, really good news. He came to those who didn't have a voice, who were a mess, who were on the edge of things. We need to hear that Caesar doesn't get the last word. Caesar doesn't get the last word. That's what we celebrate when we have communion. That's what we celebrate when we worship God. The rulers of this world, they don't have the last word. Jesus does. He's the king. He's the one who's got the last word. Today, as we get ready to close, uh, I'm going to invite the band up here. We're going to sing a, a, a song that was inspired by many Bible scholars say that they actually think uh, from, it's from uh, Philippians 2. Many Bible scholars actually believe that, that even though these words are found in the writings of Paul, they actually think that this was one of the earliest things, church hymns that was sung by Christians. And Paul was probably sitting there in a Roman prison singing this song, thinking about it, worshiping with it when he wrote Philippians. Philippians 2, starting off in verse 2, says this, Therefore, if you have any, uh, starting out in verse 1, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness or compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Paul says all this. You want to know what the, the, the way of the kingdoms of the world? It's you dominate people. It's power over. It's get my way, get my stuff. And Paul's saying, this is the kingdom way. And how does he illustrate this? He illustrates it by saying this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here's the early church hymn who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And every tongue shall acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Paul is saying, you know the way the, 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 the kingdoms of this world rule, it's like Caesar. I mean that's the way dictators, empires, uh, Kings have always ruled. And he says, consider Jesus who was God himself. And he didn't consider being God something that he would take advantage. He didn't exploit that position. But he became like a servant. He says, you people of the kingdom of God do the same things because that's what Jesus did. That's the way the kingdom of God comes in our world. That's the way the kingdom of God took over the kingdom of Rome. You know, it only got weird when Christians started grabbing for power. You can see the, the darkest times of the church happened when Christians became legal in Rome. And they started grabbing for power. Started linking themselves with Rome. I love what Jesus says one time. He says, the kingdom of God is like yeast in a loaf of bread. If you put yeast in, in some flour, make a loaf with it. 
what starts happening, that bread starts expanding. You can't exactly see what's going on, but this thing is getting bigger. It's, it's, it's growing. Some kind of process is going on the inside. And Jesus said the kingdom of God's like that. And that's what we see. This kingdom of God that began breaking in with the birth of a savior to a, a teenage girl of a persecuted ethnic minority in a, in a corner of the empire. What started in a stable within 200 years took over the whole of the Roman Empire without, without a sword, without taxation, without beating people up or manipulating them or trying to control them. It took over like yeast through a loaf of bread. How then ought we to reflect on this and reflect even in our own situation in this country and the world we live in? How ought we to live? Why don't you stand up? Let's worship together one more time.